We're going to be spending some time in Daniel chapter 4. It'd be well worth having the passage before you. You've got a Bible underneath your seats. It's page 720. That's where Daniel 4 is, page 720. Whenever you hear power talked about, you nearly always hear this quote. You could probably guess it. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are always, always bad men. They're words that were originally spoken by historian, uh, politician, writer, Lord Acton. And how appropriate in the current news cycle that men are singled out here, men in positions of power who've become corrupt. And I'd like to take an opportunity now, even though the sermon's not going in this direction, to say that if you're feeling pretty shaken up by all that's happening in the media around the abuse that's being reported, that's totally understandable. And if you're someone who has experienced abuse in the past, in a community this size, there is very likely some people. I'd like to reiterate what hopefully is always the case here at St Albans, that we are here to listen. There is someone here to listen. There is someone here to talk to. Our hope is always that we find healing in the grace of God. I just want to say that before we continue. But the sermon isn't going in that direction. Let's return to Daniel chapter 4. We'll be talking about power. One commentator says something very similar to Lord Acton when he's explaining Daniel chapter 4. But he gives a very plain explanation in this short sentence I'm about to tell you as to why corruption happens to those in power so frequently. He says this, It's virtually impossible for someone in a position of power to avoid corruption because you're important, the commentator says, because you're important, you get to think of yourself as important. Because you're important, you get to think of yourself as important. Daniel chapter 4 is all about Nebuchadnezzar. In the 6th century BC, Nebuchadnezzar was the absolute monarch of the empire of Babylon, which meant basically he was master of the universe. That's a a phrase taken from an American author's book, uh, uh, the author being Tom Wolfe. And in the book, he's describing a man from Wall Street who earned seven figures. And the description of this man on Wall Street fits perfectly with Nebuchadnezzar. Let me read you the description of this man on Wall Street. In his heart, he thought of himself as part of that elite little group of people, masters of the universe. This Wall Street man thought, by my mighty power, for the glory of my majesty, I have really gotten on top of the world. Nebuchadnezzar was important. And as he, in verse 30, surveyed his kingdom 
thinking, Is not this the great Babylon I've built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? That's what he was thinking as he was looking over Babylon and as he was looking at the hanging gardens of Babylon and as he was looking at the impenetrable walls of Babylon made from bricks with his own inscription on them. And as he was thinking that, looking over Babylon, because he was important, he came to think of himself as important. This is power leaking into pride. And as C.S. Lewis said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. But although Daniel chapter 4 is about a man with exorbitant power compared to any of the power we might have, there are lessons for us all in this chapter because really it doesn't matter how much power you hold, there's always the chance that the power that you do hold leaks into pride. Because you're important, there's always the chance you'll begin to think of yourself as important. And so this morning's passage is really a case study all about power. What's power's purpose? What happens when it goes bad? And where does it come from? And then at the end of the talk, I'll address the the theme and question that's central to the book of Daniel. How do God's people live in faithfulness to God when the world they inhabit is far from God, even anti-God? But first, what's power's purpose? What's the purpose of power? Just like in chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar had the dream that scared him and he called his advisors and wise men to interpret the dream and no one could. In chapter 4, he's again had a dream that scares him and he calls in the enchanters, the diviners, the magicians so that they might interpret the dream. But they couldn't. Surprise, surprise. And so Daniel gets called into Nebuchadnezzar's throne room and Nebuchadnezzar describes the dream to Daniel. So from verse 10. Verse 10. Upon my bed, this is what I saw. There was a tree at the centre of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew great and strong, its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and it provided food for all. The animals of the field found shade under it, the birds of the air nested in its branches, and from it all living beings were fed. When it comes to talking about power, It's hard not to talk about one of the most influential philosophers of the last 200 years, Friedrich Nietzsche. And in his volume, Will to Power, Nietzsche paints a vision in which we're all on a quest for omnipotence. The ability to become masters of our own universes, or in Nietzsche's words, masters of our own space. The only problem that he points out is that There are other bodies in our space. There's every other body who are engaged in the exact same quest. For Nietzsche, and it's so often assumed in our world, power is domination and it's a zero-sum game. If you have more power, I have less. Uh, There's the classic 1932 Western film, The Western Code, that is an example. An example of this, the villain declares to the virtuous Texas ranger, I'm not going to do an American accent, can't do that. I'm getting tired of your meddling, the villain says. This town ain't big enough for the both of us, and I'm going to give you 24 hours to get out 
if I see you in this town by this time tomorrow, it's you or me. That's power by domination and it's a zero-sum game. But that's not how power ought to work, at least according to the scriptures. The purpose of power is to bring a family, a community or whatever social unit you want to flourishing. That's the purpose of power. Did you see it in Nebuchadnezzar's dreams? The flourishing and expanding tree in the dream is a symbol for, as we see in verse 22, Nebuchadnezzar himself. Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. And trees throughout the scriptures and also in ancient Near Eastern literature are symbolic for the life and the security and the provision they offer. God had put Nebuchadnezzar in his position of power and his power was a gift to be used as a blessing for all people. So that in verse 12, the animals of the field found shade under the tree's branches, the birds of the air nested in its branches and from it all living creatures were fed. This is the purpose of power. It's not a competitive zero-sum game. That's power's corrupt inversion. Power is to be used for the sake of human flourishing, or maybe, to be more specific, for power's multiplication. So there's the obvious example of parents who, when parenting is done well, they use their power to love and nourish their kids to help them grow to be suitably, responsibly powerful little adults. So parents multiply power. But another example is, and I'm taking this from Andy Crouch's little book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Another example is a cello teacher with their pupil. In that relationship and in any relationship of instruction, there's an exchange of power where the student acquires power without the teacher giving up any of their own power. Teaching is a paradigmatic example of how power can multiply and lead to flourishing without anyone being diminished or dominated. The teacher has real, asymmetrical power, capacity and authority, something we too easily associate with domination, but that authority is all devoted to the flourishing of the student. And yet the teacher also flourishes in that relationship precisely by exercising power. And when power is used well, beautiful things happen. The pupil becomes skilled And something that was impossible before becomes possible. One person's power has been shared to lift up another so that they can play a piece together in unison or maybe in harmony, which leads to this rich sound that you just can't get with a single instrument. That's the purpose of power. Power's corruption or corrupt inversion And judgment, so point two. Powers, corruption, and judgment. So verse 13. I continued looking in the visions of my head, Nebuchadnezzar says, as I lay in bed, and there was a holy watcher coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said, cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from beneath it and the birds from its branches, but leave its stump and roots in the ground. With a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let him be bathed with the dew of heaven and let his lot be with the animals of the field in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let the mind of an animal be given to to him and let seven times pass over him. So after having said to Nebuchadnezzar that 
this tree is you. And after having said that, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. That's how bad this dream was for Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel finally delivers to the king his fate. So verse 25, you shall be driven away from human society and your dwelling shall be with the wild animals. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen. You shall be bathed with the dew of heaven and seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the most high has sovereignty over the kingdoms of mortals and gives it to whom he will. So Nebuchadnezzar, becoming like a beast to eat grass like an oxen, isn't just a random spell cast on him by God. Not only is it entirely humbling for Nebuchadnezzar to become a a beast from being a king, that's true, but his becoming outwardly mad, like an animal driven into um, the wilderness, is an external expression of a delusion that had already taken hold of him. And that delusion was... Because he was important, he came to think of himself as important. The natural outcome of that way of thinking, which is pride, according to the Bible, is to become less human and a little more like a a beast. Let me unfold um, that a little bit. We humans are given power by God. And we're given power by God in all our different domains to use it with the greatest care under his power and authority and in a way that reflects his power. In other words, we're to use the power we have on his behalf. But what happens when we use the power God gives us, not for the flourishing of others, but for ourselves? Well, that's when we begin to act like, uh, less like a human and more like an animal. And that's exactly how you might describe Nebuchadnezzar's rule. Beastly. Uh, threatening to cut people into pieces from chapter 1. Forgetting the oppressed in chapter 4, throwing people in blazing furnaces last week and threatening to tear people limb from limb. And it's so easy to dismiss such an exaggerated, nearly cartoonish example of using power like a beast. But that would be to miss an opportunity to examine our own uses of power. In your areas of influence and power, as a mum or dad, as a grandparent... As a manager of people at work, as a teacher, a childcare worker, a presence on social media, is your power diminishing others and communal ties? Or does your power promote flourishing and mutual gain and growth? Does the power we've been given deepen relationships? Or do we find our relationships getting thinner? Do the most vulnerable around you feel safe? Is your power experienced by others as mostly demanding? Or are there clear evidences of abundance and returns? And crucial for us to see, especially today, is what God does in the face of beastly uses of power, whether they're the actions of a king or a childcare worker. He sees it. Did you notice the the word for angel? It's watcher. God sees it. He provides opportunities to change. Verse 27. 
renounce your sins by doing what is right. But God eventually judges. Cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruits. But we'd be missing the point of the chapter if we didn't recognise power's source. So point three, power's source. In fact, it was Nebuchadnezzar's coming to see power's source that led to chapter four being written. Verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations and languages that live throughout the earth, may you have abundant prosperity. The signs and wonders that the most high God has worked for me, I'm pleased to recount. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his sovereignty is from generation to generation. The purpose of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and it becoming a reality, him becoming a beast, is in order that, in verse 17, which is repeated three times throughout the chapter, which is sort of a sign that this is important, verse 17, the whole purpose of the dream is that Nebuchadnezzar might know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of mortals. He gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of human beings. Daniel 4, this whole chapter, is about the most powerful man of his time, the the master of the universe, being humbled to realise there is one so much more powerful than him. Nebuchadnezzar believed power to be, as Nietzsche described it, a will to domination and as a zero-sum game. If you have more power, Nebuchadnezzar believed, I have less. Power is competition, which is why Nebuchadnezzar was so threatened when he heard about the everlasting kingdom in chapter 2. And it's why he was so furious in chapter 3 when Daniel's friends failed to submit to him. And the question is, is that type of power, the competitive zero-sum game power, is that the deepest and rawest truth about power? Is that type of power etched into reality, into the way things actually work, so that when Nietzsche wrote of it and when Nebuchadnezzar lived it, they were living in line with the grain of the universe? It's so interesting that Nebuchadnezzar gets reinstated by God. God graciously gives him power again. The God from whom all power springs isn't in competition with Nebuchadnezzar, but seeks his flourishing. It's not as if for God to have more power, Nebuchadnezzar needs to have less. Which gives us a hint. Maybe God from whom all power comes is not a zero-sum game power God. What if God, the source of all power, uses his power to create human flourishing for power's multiplication? What if God is like the cello teacher whose power, capacity and authority is devoted to the flourishing of the student and whose power has the goal of multiplying power so that when the pupil becomes skilled enough, beautiful things begin to happen? The teacher and the pupil can play a piece together in unison or in harmony. What if God's power is like that? For the fullness of time had come, and the all-powerful one from whom and through whom all things came into being, as we've heard in John's Gospel, he, he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with his towel. 
that was wrapped around him. Why did Jesus do this? Well, in verse 3 of John chapter 13, it says this, because Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Because all things were under Jesus' power, he washed his disciples' feet. It's not he had no power and so therefore he washed his disciples' feet. It's the opposite. Jesus uses his almighty power for our sake. It's not a zero-sum game for Jesus. It's not us or him. It's him and us. The washing of the disciples' feet was really just a symbolic gesture for what his entire life was moving towards. For the moment when he used every last skerrick of his infinite power to give himself for us. From the throne of majesty to being treated like an animal. All in order to wash us clean from the times we've used our power self-servingly, deceitfully, or maybe aggressively. All in order to lift us up, to fill us with the royal spirit, to be sons and daughters of the King Most High. God's power creates more power. And that, at the deepest level, is what power is all about. And when we realise that we are citizens of an eternal kingdom whose king is like that, we'll also, like Nebuchadnezzar, want to say something like in verse 37, I praise and extol and honour the king of heaven for all his works are truth and his ways are just and he is able to bring low those who walk in pride. And so to conclude, as I mentioned last week, one of the major themes and questions of the book of Daniel is how do God's people live in faithfulness to God when the world they inhabit is far from God, even anti-God? But two really quick things to say. This chapter and the next chapter, chapter 5, falls at the centre of the, the book's structure. And so whatever Daniel chapter 4 and 5 say, it's at the crux of the message of Daniel. So far in the book of Daniel, there have been hints that within the, the superpower of Babylon, there have been hints that another kingdom is moving in. In chapter 1, Daniel refused the king's decadent foods, but yet he grew stronger. Hints that something else is happening in Babylon. There's a small stone at the end of chapter 2 that's a symbol for an everlasting kingdom that destroys this massive statue. Hints that another kingdom is coming through. And in chapter 3, the threats of Nebuchadnezzar couldn't undo the will of these citizens of a different country. In chapter 4 and chapter 5, the clash of kingdoms that has been a hint so far in the book has reached its crescendo and it's at the foreground for us all to see. And the question of chapter 4 and 5 is, whose king has power? And the answer to that question is so undeniable, so unequivocal, so unmistakable, that the exiles either in Babylon or those Israelites who were still amid the ruins of Jerusalem couldn't help but be comforted. Their God, despite how it appears on the ground, is the most high Sovereign over the kingdoms of mortals. And so it is with us. 
Whether we're a minority on the fringe of society or embraced and accepted by society, even when power is continually inverted and corrupted, not only by people in the world, but by people who profess faith in Jesus too, even then, the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of mortals. But finally, and to close, back to the quote from Lord Acton. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Whenever these words are spoken, it's, it seems like they're sort of touching on one of those indisputable truths. Yep, we think that's the truth about power. But although distorted power is corrupt and corrupting, toxic and destructive, not all power is distorted. In fact, true power creates human flourishing and is necessary for it. True power multiplies power. It lifts people up. It gives them agency. It gives people a taste of the infinite power of God. And it's exactly that type of power that we all as Christ's followers are called to enact. And which requires that we continually and carefully root out any signs of distorted power in our own lives. So let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, thank you for using your power for us, for lifting us up. Father, we pray that you give us the power that, that resided in Jesus, that you give us the power to, to use the power you've given us for the sake of others. When it's so easy to invert power, to use it for ourselves, Father, don't let us do that. By the Spirit, keep us walking in a direction that is using all the power you've given us for the flourishing and good of others. We need your help. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.